Hello, this is Jeff Orge. Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. I'm the president of Gateway Seminary of the Southern Baptist Convention, and I spend this podcast time talking with you about various issues related to leadership. And today, I want to talk about the definition of leadership and particularly the definition of Christian leadership. Now, I've read probably 200 books on leadership, and one of the things that frustrates me about them is that I often read the entire book and never find a one-sentence, clearly articulated definition of what the author means when he uses the word leadership. Frankly, that word is used to describe so many different activities and functions that it's hard to know exactly uh, what's being described or what's being written about in most of these books. So for a number of years, I searched for or tried to write a succinct definition of leadership. And then someone gave me a book a few years ago called Leadership for the 21st Century by Joseph Rost. Now, Dr. Rost was a professor in San Diego who specialized in studying leadership and writing about it. He developed a a project whereby he took a team of Ph.D. researchers, and they decided to, believe it or not, tried to read and research every use of the word leadership in the English language in published materials in the 20th century. Now, that was a formidable task. Uh, They broke it down decade by decade and started looking at books, magazine articles, journal articles, and other significant publications. The amount of material grew decade by decade, but starting in the 1970s, it took off exponentially. And so in the latter part of their study, they actually had to limit their published their survey of published materials to uh, journal articles and books on the subject. Nevertheless, they spent uh, a significant amount of time analyzing all of the ways the word leadership was used and all of the definitions or descriptions of the word in various publications on, in various genres and in various fields and disciplines all throughout the 20th century. As a result, the team finally wrote a definition of leadership, which I find to be very significant and very helpful. Here's their definition. Leadership is an influence relationship among leaders and followers who intend real changes that reflect their mutual purposes. Now, let me say it again. Leadership is an influence relationship among leaders and followers who intend real changes that reflect their mutual purposes. You can find that definition in the book, Leadership for the 21st Century by Joseph Rost. You can also, if you uh, come to some leadership seminar or conference I speak in, hear me talk about this definition in great detail. I actually have a two to three hour presentation I make, breaking down the definition almost word by word and talking about the intricacies of its meaning and why I think it's the best written definition of leadership that, uh, that I've come across in my leadership studies. But today, I don't want to talk about the whole breadth of it. I just want to highlight some phrases, and then I want to hone in on one key phrase. Now, when I present this definition uh, in class here at the seminary, one of the complaints about it that comes from students is God is not mentioned in the definition. The definition has no spiritual overtones, no uh, moral or ethical value. And that's very intentional in writing this definition. One of the subtle assumptions that Christians make is that leadership is a Christian practice. It's not. Uh, Leaders uh, exist in fields uh, that have nothing to do with Christian faith, and leaders uh, exist in fields where Christians and non-Christians are both found, and non-Christians are often the leaders. 
And so leadership is not by definition a Christian function. However, for Christians, the issue is how do we infuse this definition with spiritual um, emphasis or how do we infuse this definition with spiritual authority or with spiritual perspective? Or you might say, how do we bring a Christian worldview into the definition? Or as one student put it maybe more succinctly, how do you put God in the definition? That's really what I'm asking. So I've worked on that. The definition, as I said, can be analyzed almost word by word, but let me just mention three key phrases. First, leadership is an influence relationship. This means the motive and the attitude and the means of influence are significant. And I think this is the first and perhaps most important place where Christian worldview, Christian values, where, to quote my student, God has to be interjected into the definition. The way that we influence others and the motive and the attitude and the means or the strategy of doing that really does define whether leadership is Christian. Another important phrase is intend real change. This is what separates leadership from management and from so many other, def- uh, from so many other disciplines. Leaders bring about real change. They shift paradigms. They do what's never been done before. They take organizations and people places that they've never been before. Leaders intend real change. And then finally, uh, the definition focuses on mutual purposes. One thing I really like about this definition is it underscores the interplay between leaders and followers. Leadership is not something that you do to people. It's something that's done in community, done with people, done in an an interactive way as leaders and followers engage one another. When they have mutual purposes, they are able to do so much more than just simply trying to accomplish the leader's purposes. Now, of course, Christians, both leaders and followers, have the remarkable advantage of having the ultimate mutual purpose, and that is uh, the expansion or the advancement of the kingdom of God. And so leadership is an influence relationship among leaders and followers who intend real changes that reflect their mutual purposes. And that these key juncture points of influence relationship, intend real changes, and mutual purposes, the Christian worldview can come to bear on the definition and can convert it into a description or a definition of truly Christian leadership. Now, for the balance of this podcast, I want to focus on this phrase, influence relationship, and I want to talk about the proper spiritual foundations for developing these influence relationships in the context of a Christian worldview and in the context of what the Bible says to us about leadership. Now, the first thing I want to address is the proper leadership motive, and that proper leadership motive is love. In Matthew 22, chapter, uh, verses 34 through 39, Uh, Jesus describes what it means to have the proper leadership motive. Here's what Jesus said. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. So Jesus clearly articulates what is the motive which is supposed to drive us as Christians and certainly the motive that's supposed to drive us as Christian leaders. Love is the greatest commandment. 
It is the most significant aspect of human relationships, and it is the, the motive or, or, or what drives us in leadership relationships. I find it very significant that Jesus said these words to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These were the religious elite of Jesus' time. They were the religious leaders, the people who, the, who were looked to to give spiritual direction. Now, we know from a broader understanding of Scripture that both the Pharisees and the Sadducees had uh, abused their position and had failed in their leadership responsibilities. So I find it very striking that when Jesus speaks of the greatest commandment, the defining uh, quality in human relationships, the motive that must drive us as we connect with one another, he spoke those words to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so I think he's saying the same thing to us as Christian leaders. What drives us must be, first of all, love for God. But then Jesus adds one more uh, verse in this passage, and that is verse 39, when he says, the second is like it, meaning the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So Jesus said, not only is love for God the first commandment, but love for other people is the second commandment. And notice again that Jesus announced this or said this to the Pharisees and also uh, by implication to the Sadducees who were, who were part of the conversation. So this uh, statement is significant. The proper leadership motive. What drives us? What drives us is love for God and love for people. So if you're bringing any other motive to bear uh, as your primary motive or if anything else is crowded out love as your motive for leadership, then you are disqualifying yourself as a Christian leader. You don't fit the definition of a Christian leader. If your influence relationships are based on coercion or money or power or if your influence relationships are based on your position or your authority, if your influence relationships are based on uh, information that you've manipulated or any kind of power play that you're participating in, you've disqualified yourself from being called a Christian leader. Those things all need to be set aside, and what has to drive us every day as we try to lead in God's kingdom is love for God and love for people. So that's the proper leadership motive. Now, a second aspect of influence, a proper influence relationship is the proper leadership attitude. And that leadership attitude, attitude is humility. Now, humility is a challenging subject. Um, I once uh, wrote a chapter in a book on, on humility. And uh, my children, especially my oldest son, had great fun with that saying, you know, Dad, isn't there something that sort of contradicts the point here when you write a chapter telling other people how to be humble, basically saying that you've figured out how to be humble and now you're writing a chapter to tell other people how to do it? Well, that wasn't exactly what I was trying to do, but my children did have a lot of fun with me about that. I did write a chapter on how to be humble, and I'm going to quote it from it in just a moment, but I wasn't really trying to say that I've mastered humility. I was trying to say that here are some practical handles on how to develop humility as a leadership attitude. Now, the reason this is so significant is because of what Jesus said in, or what Paul wrote about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 5, he, he wrote this, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God. Do not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, here's the key phrase, 
he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. This passage describes Jesus Christ making a very significant choice to humble himself. And he humbled himself by taking the position that he had and using it for the benefit of others by willingly dying for us on the cross. In this context, Jesus models the true meaning of humility, which is using your position and privilege privileges to meet the needs of others. True humility is sacrificing to meet the needs of others. Now I want to underscore that understanding of what it means to be humble. True humility in the context of leadership is using your position and privileges to benefit others. It's not debasing yourself, putting yourself down, are denying the position or the privileges that you've been given. It is instead using those for the benefit of others. For example, here at the seminary as president, I don't demonstrate humility by denying that I'm president or by saying it doesn't matter or by claiming that the authority of the office should never be exercised. What I do is claim to be president, own the responsibility that I have, and use carefully the authority and privileges that I've been given, not for my benefit, but for the benefit of others. And that is the essence of demonstrating humility after the model of Jesus. Jesus, used, or Jesus owned who he was and the position that he had, used it to sacrifice himself for the benefit of all of us, and thereby demonstrated real humility. Now, John the Baptist is another person who demonstrated real humility. John the Baptist demonstrates humility because he models for us what it means to own who we are and the position we've been given and to fulfill it using the privileges and responsibilities that we have, uh, or the privileges and authorities we have to fulfill the responsibilities that we've been given. So a wrong understanding of humility is debasing yourself or putting yourself down or talking about your inadequacy. And a right understanding is seeing yourself as God sees you, accepting God's appraisal of you, and fulfilling the mission God has assigned for you, primarily focusing not on meeting your own needs or, or uh, uh, accomplishing good for yourself, but instead meeting the needs of others and accomplishing good on their behalf. Now, I wrote this short paragraph in my book, The Character of Leadership. I wrote, John the Baptist is a good example of this. When asked... What can you tell us about yourself? He did not hesitate to answer. He did not drop his head or scuff his toe. He simply answered the question. John said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John later added, He is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. Of course, he was speaking of Jesus who he had come to introduce. Now, underscore this sentence. Yet in spite of Jesus' greatness and his smallness by comparison. John still owned both his identity and mission. Jesus' preeminence did not invalidate John's role in God's overall plan. So whatever leadership role or responsibility you've been given, own it. But don't own it with a sense of arrogance saying, look at me and what I've accomplished. Own it with a sense of humility that says, I'm going to use the privileges and the power that I've been given for the benefit of others to make a significant and legitimate difference in the name of Jesus Christ, not in my name. Now, the importance of this is, is hard to overestimate. 
There are a number of biblical reminders of the value of humility. Let me mention those to you. First of all, God opposes the proud. In 1 Peter 5.5, the Bible says God resists the proud. And the word resists could be translated, draws himself up in battle array. It means that God brings to bear everything he has against a proud person, but he brings everything he has in support of a humble person. Second, God exalts the humble. In James 4.10, the Bible says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. God promises that he will raise up those who willingly put themselves down and use, them, and use what they have for the benefit of others. The Bible also says God leads the humble. In Psalm 25.9, the Bible says the Lord leads the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. Every leader longs to know they're on the right path doing the right thing. And the, the, a, true, a sure way to, be a, to, to know that is to humble yourself and ask God to lead you along the way. And then God empowers the humble. Uh, Moses, the Bible describes in, chapter 12, in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, was a very humble man, more so than any man on the face of the earth. But we also know Moses had incredible power uh, and was used by God in dramatic and amazing ways. He was able to have that kind of power because of his humility. And then, finally, God's presence surrounds the humble. And notice that God's presence surrounds people not places. And this was even true in the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah wrote, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house could you possibly build for me? Now, that's striking in the era of the temple that that question would be raised. And then Isaiah continued, I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and who trembles at my word. The Bible has many reminders of the value of humility. God opposes the proud, exalts the humble, leads the humble, empowers the humble, and his presence surrounds the humble. So, how do you develop this kind of humility? Well, here are some simple steps, but before I give you those, let me remind you the Bible says, humble yourselves. It says this in James 4.10 and 1 Peter 5.6, and this phrase, humble yourselves, stands in contrast to the other one another passages in the New Testament. There are a number of places in the Bible where it says, honor one another, love one another, care for one another, serve one another. But the Bible never says, humble one another. It always says instead, humble yourselves. So that means Developing humility is a choice you make. That humility can be developed by actions that, that you demonstrate. Humility is something that you can, if you want to say it this way, strive for or attain. It's something that you can go after. Now, that may sound like a, a contrast or even a conflict or some kind of spiritual paradox, and in some sense it is. But nevertheless, the phrase humble yourselves means take the initiative to do something which helps you to learn humility. So let me give you some examples of what you can do. First, humble yourself by using your position to benefit others. Meaning that when you're faced with major decisions, don't ask, what will this do for me? But ask, what will this do to benefit others? A few years ago, when the United States government went through a major overhaul of the healthcare 
system in our country, it affected the seminary. And our uh, vice president for business services made a significant study of this and brought a report to me which said that there was a particular decision that we would make that would benefit uh, the vast majority, about 90% of our employees. But there were a few employees, really just a handful, that would be harmed by the decision, meaning that they would have to pay out more financially while the bulk of the employees received a benefit. And the employee of those who would have to pay more, because honestly my salary was the largest, would have to, was me. Uh, this decision was going to cost me um, hundreds of dollars every month, and it was, a, it was a frustrating thing to have to face up to that. So I had to weigh out. Do I make a decision that's for the best of the most of the people who work at the seminary, or do I make a decision that's going to benefit me? And if I make the decision that benefits the most of the people, I'm going to wind up paying out um, every month hundreds of dollars to offset the cost of what this program change is going to mean. Well, while it was a difficult decision in some sense, it was easy in others because I've made a predetermined decision uh, that I'm going to try to make every decision I can uh, for the benefit of the people I lead, not for my personal enrichment. And so we made that decision. And God has blessed the decision in giving many more people in our organization access to quality health care and even higher quality health care. While, frankly, it's cost me, and now that that decision's a few years old, uh, that cost has been in the thousands of dollars. But it was still the right decision. Another way to develop humility is accept and value your leadership role, no matter what it may be. Um, for example, uh, I know uh, a person who works very quietly in a very effective leadership role in preschool ministry. Uh, this person was given an opportunity to speak at a large conference on this subject, and everyone, uh, not everyone, but many people raved and said, oh, it's so exciting that you're getting to speak, and it's so exciting that you're getting to be in front of so many people. But her response was quite the opposite. She said, you know, that's really not who I am, and that's really not my primary leadership role, and I place higher value on the work I do week by week by week, training and mentoring and guiding uh, preschool teachers and children's ministry leaders and others in a behind-the-scenes quiet kind of way. And so humility is developed not by lusting after or striving to get some kind of leadership role that you think or other people may say is perceived to be higher or more influential. Humility is demonstrating by owning who you are and what you're responsible to do and putting your whole heart into it and valuing it highly. I think that's also modeled by John the Baptist. Another way to express humility is to develop the discipline of being grateful to people who serve you and who serve with you. The higher uh, you rise in leadership and the more responsibility you're given, frankly, the more people will serve you and the more people who will serve with you to accomplish what you say is most important in the organization or the church. I've developed the discipline of trying to give honor and recognition to the people who work around me. Uh, one simple way I do this is related to our uh, Board of Trustees meetings and Board of Trustees report. Uh, we have four vice presidents at Gateway that do really good work, and every time we write a board report, each one of them writes a section. And when I write the summary report, I always highlight for the board the significant accomplishments of each vice president and underscore their contribution to the seminary. So while the entire report goes out with my name on the masthead, I want those guys to be celebrated in the context of it and raised up in the, their esteem and value, and my gratitude to them is expressed in that, in that way. 
And then a final way to develop humility is to celebrate the successes of other leaders. You know, it's really tempting to be jealous of other leaders when they're successful or when they achieve something remarkable. Uh, But humility celebrates the successes of other leaders and applauds what they're accomplishing and is grateful for the way God is using them. Someone asked me many years ago if I was praying for revival in my city. And I said, yes, I, I actually was. And then he smiled and said, will you be happy if it comes to the Methodist church down the street? And frankly, he caught me on that because I was praying that God would send revival, but I just assumed it would have to come to the Baptists. What if revival came to your community through some other group or organization or church or denomination? Would you celebrate what God was doing or would you be somewhat jealous or resentful? One way to cultivate humility is to discipline yourself to celebrate with notes of congratulations or verbal praise or other means by which you say that you're grateful that others are having success. That demonstrates humility and teaches you humility. So we're now still talking about how to influence Christian um, motive, Christian um, attitude, and Christian strategy or means into the definition of leadership. How do you develop influence relationships? Well, you have to be driven by love and they have to be uh, in the context of a servant or a, a humble attitude or an attitude of humility. And now finally, the strategy or the means is service. Jesus made this quite clear, both in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, and in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. In these passages, Jesus contrast, or in the Mark passage particularly, Jesus contrasts secular leadership styles with spiritual leadership. And he said this, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him or approached Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. So what do you want for me to do? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become your Uh, Become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus said, the strategy or the means of gaining influence is serving other people in love with an attitude of humility. Now, how do you develop more of a servant spirit in leadership? Well, here's a few suggestions. First, choose to do a dirty job. Uh, recognize that as a leader, you're often exempted from doing the what I call dirty jobs in an organization, but every now and then, just choose to do one. Choose to work with your colleagues. Uh, we say at the seminary that no job, that no one of us is too good to do any job. Now, there's some jobs that I don't do for the good of the seminary because I need to focus my attention elsewhere, but there's no job at the seminary I'm too good to do. 
And so when I see people picking up trash or taking something out to the dumpster, or I see people moving some equipment and they need a helping hand, step in and help. You don't have to be on that team or in that department to work with your colleagues and just show them that uh, you're available and you want to be a part of what they're doing. Another way to develop servanthood is to choose to do some work anonymously. I remember once I was working on a volunteer missions team and uh, the person asked me, well, where do you work? And I said, well, I work at the Northwest Baptist Convention. And he said, well, what do you do there? And I said, well, I uh, kind of work with uh, oversight of the operation and try to help with a lot of different areas. And he said, well, what's your title? And I said, well, I'm actually the executive director. And he smiled and said, what are you doing out here working on this volunteer team? I said, well, because that's what needs to be done right now. I'm, I'm a part of the team and I want to be a part of this project. He was shocked. But I was trying to work anonymously. I was just trying to do what I was supposed to do, not trying to draw attention to myself. Developing servanthood helps, uh, can be done by that kind of work. And not only anonymously, but sometimes choose to do work secretly. Uh, leaders get a lot of credit and a lot of accolade for what they do, but sometimes find ways to do things that no one ever knows about. And then finally, choose to serve a critic. This may be the, the hardest and most difficult way to develop servanthood. I mean, doing dirty jobs and helping your colleagues and working anonymously or secretly, those things can all be done, but Whenever someone's been harsh toward you or been undermining of your leadership or even attacked you publicly, you know, that's, that's hard to do. Um, I once had a situation where a person attacked me in a public meeting. They spoke really strongly against me and against what I was trying to accomplish. And it was painful because my wife and my children were there that day. And he singled me out pretty strongly. But ultimately, the recommendation that was being made was passed, and, and we moved on from that experience. Well, a few months later, he called and said, I, I need to see you. And I thought, well, here comes more criticism. This should be fun. So he came to my office and said, I don't know who else to turn to. Um, he said, my youth pastor just told me that his girlfriend is pregnant. She's also part of our church. In fact, she's our deacon chairman's daughter. I need help. And I thought in that moment, here's a person who's attacked me publicly who tried to undermine my effectiveness, and now he's turning to me for help. I knew, though, that if I loved him, and that if I was to demonstrate an attitude of humility before him, that what I needed to do was help him. And so I did. I worked with him to move through that very difficult situation in his church, in his personal life, and obviously in his family. Serving a critic is difficult, but in doing so, you develop a deeper attitude of service that permeates all you do as a Christian leader. So, our definition, we borrowed that. Leadership is an influence relationship among leaders and followers who intend real change according to their mutual purposes. God needs to be part of that definition. I think he's made part of that definition by injecting the Christian perspective on leadership, particularly on the issue of influence relationships, how we work with people. And so I challenge you, develop the motive of love, the attitude of humility, and use the strategy or means of service to be a distinctly Christian leader.